So two weeks ago, we began our study through Paul's letter to the church of Colossae. We call it Colossians. In the first week, we looked at verses 1 through 14, which demonstrate to us Paul's relationship to the people that he's writing the letter to and their relationship to God in Jesus. So he's telling them how grateful he is that he is or that they have heard and received the gospel and he prays for the fruit of the gospel to be born in those people as it does as it bears fruit in the lives of all people that receive the gospel all over the world ever. So Colossians 9 says from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So for those that have been saved, why do we still pursue more knowledge? And wisdom of God's will. If we're already saved, we're already not going to hell. So why even? I mean, that's that's the main thing, right? This this is telling us that there's much more. There's much more that God has in store for us than just not going to hell. So whenever you see phrases like "in order to" or "so that" or "so as to," like we saw there in those verses, that's the author telling us a purpose for something. So Paul answers that question for us. The question would be. Why be filled with spiritual... Why keep, why keep growing as a Christian if I'm already not going to hell? Why should we increase in knowledge? Why should we increase in works for God? The answer, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's why it says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That was week one. In week two, we looked at some of, like I've said, the most majestic claims of Jesus in the whole Bible. He's the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, the firstborn of the living and the dead, the reconciler of all creation. So Paul concludes that list of divine credentials of Jesus by saying, this eternal king has chosen to make all those who continue to trust in him holy and blameless like him. Colossians 1.21 says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, remember, in order to, that means purpose, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it's answering the question, why did Jesus reconcile us? And it says it right there, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, uh, that's why he did it, not to embarrass you, not to torture you, troll you, bore you, annoy you in this life, shame you, dominate you. <laughs> he reconciles you to make you totally pure. That's the best news in the world, that God is going to make us pure, like he is. Christ reconciled us so that we would be made perfect. That's how Jesus wants to present you, complete and without any reason for regret or shame, perfect. So make a note of that word, to present, present, uh, in verse 25. You can highlight or underline it or something. That's one of the key words in this whole letter, and it also appears again in our text tonight. In order to present you, to present you. Okay, so moving on. Paul finishes that paragraph by saying, I became a minister of that gospel. 
the eternal king, not annihilating us or banishing us, but reconciling us. Paul is saying, I want all of us to be engaged in that story. Now, when you look at these letters, they all have the markings of authenticity. Like, they look like real letters because Paul is not obsessing over these theological abstractions. In other words, these letters aren't textbooks. They're not reading like, okay, lesson one, this thing. Here are the study questions. It's, uh, these are real letters. And oftentimes, you can see that they are deeply personal messages. So, we've got to remember that there's a real point for real people in reading this. Not just to know cool facts about Jesus. But there's a real point for people in everyday life to benefit from these letters. There's a real point even for middle schoolers and high schoolers. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but at the end of the letter, he says, read this in front of the whole church. Now, I'm assuming some kids were, at least one kid was present there. And he's saying, read the whole book of Colossians in front of everyone. Which is why we did that the first week, by the way. (laughs) Because it tells us to do it in the letter. So, sorry, but, you know, it says it there. Uh, So Paul speaks of the gospel, and that produces endurance and joy in the hearts of all those who believe and continue in it. Paul proclaims the gospel because he knows of the glorious result that it brings. Not just converting people from not going to hell, but making people whole, making people complete, making people bear the image of God as they were originally intended to. So these are not, these are not strictly business calls or just, or just lectures on theological concepts. Uh, ministry is hard work. Paul even calls it work or a struggle. We're going to see that in the text tonight. So this, this letter demonstrates how interpersonal the study of these things should be. How emotional, how challenging, and how lovely the result is. Some people make it seem as though the hardest thing about ministry is how lacking other people are. So we hear, we hear all our you know, favorite professional Christians say stuff like, Man, the ministry is so hard because of how difficult these, pe- these other people are. Or you hear people say in marriage, man, my marriage is so hard because of how difficult my spouse is. Or people say, having siblings is so hard because of how difficult they are. How, how bad siblings they are. <laughs> well, there, there is truth to that. You know, other people are bad at doing what they do. Uh, which includes you, by the way. So life is difficult because other people with whom we interact are difficult. However, do we, do we consider or more focus on how difficult we are for other people? How incomplete and lacking we are. So, I've been in the passenger seat of people's cars as they drive. And they're complaining about the driving of, you know, the people in the other vehicles. But then I start to notice how how this person drives. They're not using their turn signals. They're speeding. They're not stopping fully at the stop signs. Wow. So, everyone else is driving the same way that the person complaining about the people driving is driving. (laughs) So the people around us do leave a lot to be desired. Uh, The people around us are very lacking, are very incomplete. Even Christians we hold in high esteem, like our friends, our classmates, our youth leaders, our pastors, our parents even, uh, they are significantly lacking in their own ways. Now at the same time, consider this, every one of us, every one of you here is lacking too. Every one of us has issues of Immaturity, And I don't mean immaturity as in, you know, you still laugh at, you know, 
I don't know, SpongeBob or something. I don't mean immature in that sense. But we have to come to terms that we are incomplete people as we are. We are not as we should be. We are not everything people think we are. We are all spiritually lacking. So this, talk, this, this passage talks about both of those realities. The people around us are lacking and we are lacking. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. Because the gospel is the only thing that offers people the true hope and result of transformation. Real transformative power. So tonight we'll consider how God overcomes our issues of immaturity and incompleteness. And how does God resolve the fact that I am incomplete on my own? So let's read the text now. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea. And for all all those who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. To reach all the fullness. The riches of all full assurance of understanding. And the knowledge of God's ministry. Which is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness or your faith in Christ. So let's take the passage section by section. First section being verses 24 through 26. Now, as usual, I want to ask a few questions on this section and hear your answers to them. Okay, so... In one of the commentaries I'm reading for Colossians, written by a guy by the name of Douglas Moo. I'm still not over his last name. It's Moo. And it says, he says, verse 24, verse 24b, which is referring to the second part of that verse. He says, that's one of the most difficult phrases to interpret in the whole letter. So here we go. We're about, we're about to try and interpret one of the hardest verses in the, whole, in the whole study of Colossians right now. So we have our work cut out for us. I, I looked at this verse so many times. Testing different possible meanings. And I have a lot of questions about it, so let, let's break this down. Let me hear what you guys think. First of all, let's get the easy stuff out of the way. Who is the I in this section? And who's the your? So who's the speaker and who's, who's the audience? Okay, the speaker. Um, Paul. Paul, yeah, in verse 1. Paul and Apostle of Christ Jesus. Yeah. The church. So the audience is the church at Colossae. So look at verse 2. Of the letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Yeah, so the the direct you words are applying to the Christians, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. All right, got it. Now, why would Paul be rejoicing about suffering? 
Why would he be happy about pain? Yeah. Sorry? Learning pain? Oh, uh, okay. That sounds pretty cool. What, what do you mean by that? Sorry? You lost the content. All right, so look at, well, look at the beginning of, of what we read tonight. We're just going in the, in the order here. Uh, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why, why is he rejoicing? That's my question. Why, why would he be rejoicing while suffering? Okay, what, what do you mean by that? Coming to Jesus. Okay, what if, what if the suffering actually, what if he actually ends up dying from this? What if he doesn't make it out alive? Okay, yeah. Um, suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ, okay. This Christ, this Christ needed is... Is Jesus lacking in any way? No. Okay, so what, what does it mean to suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, let me, let me give you a clue here. So, it says, it says in that verse, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So, apparently Paul is saying, I'm happy that this suffering... Is happening because it has some kind of function for it serving you, the Colossians. It has some way of benefiting you. How does that make sense? Is he rejoicing his suffering because um, for for uh, the people's the people's sake he knows to for them to come to Jesus? Okay, but these people are actually already Christian. So Paul's not suffering to. Paul is not suffering in a way that, okay, since I suffered, that saves you. In the same way that Jesus, he dies on the cross and it saves everyone who believes in him. Paul dies, but it doesn't save anyone. So he, so the purpose of the suffering, there's some purpose for the Christians that are aware of or, or watching this happening to Paul. How does it, how does it help them? Okay, let's go to 80. That in the suffering, you know that you can trust in the Lord. Okay. It, it reminds you that you can trust God, even in suffering. He, he never guaranteed us a painless life. So it's not like He failed us when we, when we go through suffering. It reminds you of, wait, which are, what are the, the things that God has promised? Has He failed on those things? And then you remember, no, He hasn't. Okay, so you're reminded of the faithfulness of God even in your suffering. Yeah. It's like the test of faith. Also, another thing I was thinking about was in another book, I forgot which book it is. Um, Paul is in prison and yeah. he says, You preached that week, it was this imprisonment has really yeah. used to make like new pastors. You looked at my notes, didn't you? No. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good example where Paul is actually saying, and yes, I did, I did preach that when we went through Philippians. 
what has really what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. Now we'll get to how it served them in a second. But anyway, Paul can say, "I'm, I have, uh, I'm happy about the suffering in a certain way because I know it serves a certain purpose for you." We'll get more into the details as to how it actually helps other people when the way that we suffer. We'll get more into that. Um, so. What do you guys think the phrase, I am filling up, look at verse 24. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Was Jesus' suffering not enough to save people? Is that what he's saying? Because that would be pretty, that'd be pretty edgy. <laughs> what would you say? Okay. <laughs> so, but in what way? In what way are Christ's afflictions lacking? Is he not saying that he is lacking? Okay. So, yeah. So that that's that's what makes this one of the hardest verses. Uh, to interpret because like how is this thing split up so he's saying I'm filling up what I am lacking from Christ like am I using Christ's afflictions to fill me up in the way that I am lacking or is he saying I'm filling up in my flesh because Christ's afflictions don't fill me up in that way I'm filling up I'm filling up in my flesh what Christ's afflictions don't do for the church Okay. Based off of what Christ has done, I got a lot more to suffer. Okay, so there's a yeah. So it's not like he's saying I'm like it's like it's not like a Paul verse Paul's afflictions versus Christ's afflictions, but it, what Paul is going through is similar to what to to what Jesus went through. Uh, so maybe for people that never met Jesus or hear the stories of Jesus, seeing an actual other human being going through that. Paul is just like, look, this is basically the same kind of thing Jesus went through. Except what he did actually saves you. Um, so the way that Paul is suffering for, for the sake of people seeing the hope that he has in Jesus. He's saying that has a certain ministry to people in other parts of the world that they weren't able to meet Jesus. They weren't able to see Jesus. But they see my life as a living testimony of the kind of life that Jesus lived. Of the kind of suffering that Jesus did. Didn't do anything wrong. Uh, trusted in God and used his suffering for advancing the gospel. Uh, I'm still, I'm still not totally set on how to, how to make sense of that. Um, I think as we, if we take it as a whole, though, we'll we'll have more of an idea as to what that means. Um, but anyway, we can we can conclude this. Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because he recognizes. This has a special purpose for the people that are following the story of my suffering. This has a special benefit to those people. And that makes it kind of worth it to suffer. I'm not just suffering for no reason. I'm not just being tortured pointlessly, randomly. Uh, but God is intending something from my suffering to benefit other people. Okay, now 
remember what I've said in the past. When you're reading the Bible, there are two, there are lots of questions you can ask. But two questions that you can kind of apply whenever you're reading is one, does, does the passage you're reading explain itself? Does the passage itself offer explanations for questions that might arise? That's one. And then number two, do other parts of the Bible explain anything that you're reading in that text? So does, anyway, well, basically what we're saying is, does the Bible help us read the Bible? Anyway. So we just, um, Ben kind of brought it up already. He used the example from Philippians as a way of saying, oh, that was an example of how Paul was saying, my suffering served a purpose for other people. So that's what I'm talking about, how you can use the Bible to interpret other parts of the Bible. Does Paul explain why he's struggling and suffering? Or is he just saying, you know, there's a silver lining? Is it just like a fake optimism that he has? I'm going to say no. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So he's saying, this is why I'm struggling and suffering. Okay, so, well, what, what, well, first of all, what does toil mean? Because who uses that, who uses that word? What does toil mean? Work, yeah. Conflict, so it's like a, it's like a hard work. It's tough. Okay. Uh, yeah, effort, labor, uh, exertion. So Paul is saying, this is the thing I'm working so hard for. Wait, so which thing was he talking about? Let's look at the verse right before it. Look at verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There it is again, folks. So he says it himself. I'm struggling and toiling and suffering. Because my ultimate goal of ministry is to present everyone, including myself, mature in Christ. Now some people might say, well, hold on, Jeffrey. Paul was referring to the proclaiming and the warning and the teaching everyone. That's the stuff he was directly talking about in that verse. Uh, so it doesn't say Paul was thrown in jail so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It says we warn and we teach everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, so wow, if you thought that... Uh, <laughs> I would say that's a good point. But let me show you why I think Paul is saying his teaching ministry and his sufferings are both serving to present everyone mature in Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts, so remember when it says that or so that or in order to, it's indicating a purpose of something. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. For what? That your hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love. So, seeing how other people struggle and suffer has a certain effect on you. Christians should endure their afflictions in such a way that is for the sake of those watching. Christians should respond to sufferings in a way that knits us together in love. Christians should deal with their pain in such a way that makes others more certain of who is truly valuable to us. And the only one who will never leave us 
or forsake us. Christians should endure life in such a way that gives others all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Furthermore, God means the suffering of his people to something ultimately beneficial to others. In other words, God superintends. So humans have intentions for something. And over that, super, so great. Over that, God has an intention that it ultimately serves. He has a super intention. Uh, so God superintends for the sufferings of Christ and his church to serve the spread of the gospel around the world and the maturity of believers. Paul is saying both of those are happening. The Jews and the Romans of the first century meant evil against Jesus, but God meant the cross for the salvation of all the sinners who believe in him. God intended for Jesus' cross to defeat Satan. God intended the crucifixion to be Jesus' exaltation. That's super intention. The Jews and the Romans meant to destroy Jesus, and they did. But God meant for Jesus' death on the cross to secure all those things that I just said, and it did. So, these are the points. Or this is, it's really one point with two subpoints. Rejoice in your sufferings for their God-intended purposes. For yourself and for other Christians. Rejoice in your sufferings for their God-intended purposes. For yourself and for other Christians. Rejoice in your sufferings for their God-intended purpose, purposes. For yourself and for other Christians. So notice how Paul says, I'm filling up in my flesh. So he's saying, this is filling me up in a specific way. Me enduring the suffering is completing me, is filling me up in a certain way. In what ways do our afflictions ultimately bless us on an individual level? You individually. In what ways do your afflictions individually benefit you? What do you think? How have, how have the really difficult things you've gone through benefited you as an individual? Us learning from it. Learn, okay, learning from it. Like learning what? A lesson. Okay. What, so you have an example? Like a lesson you learned from enduring, enduring something really difficult that tested you? Okay, you can think about it. Anybody have an example of how enduring something really difficult benefited you as an individual person at you know on the other end of it yeah like anytime i ever got a spank as a kid <laughs> <laughs> thank you the, you know youth ministry were a success right here because of what was just said right there <laughs> said the spanking served a good purpose for me <laughs> uh how did those serve a good purpose uh, you're being recorded by the way <laughs> uh it taught me what not to do Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the discipline in that case taught you um, taught you consequence for actions, taught you right and wrong. Okay. Did you raise your hand? All right. Go ahead. Technically, wasn't really disciplined, but being moving churches. Moving, moving churches. 
Okay, how did how did that how did that uh, teach you? Oh, you're just saying you learned more in general at the church you went to after. Okay. All right. Um, all right, well, I have some verses here. Psalm 119. So remember, the question is, in what way do our afflictions ultimately bless us as individuals? Okay, so look at Psalm 119, verse 71. It says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Not statues. I used to think it was statues. I'm like, wait, we're not supposed to worship idols. <laughs> uh, it's statutes, uh, which is like rules or laws. So right there, the psalmist in Psalm 119 is saying, me being afflicted, me going through something really hard, help me learn God's law. Okay. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. It is for discipline... You have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. And besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Like Ethan was just saying right now. (laughs) Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. And here it is. That we may share his holiness. Okay, so you can make note of that. That we may share his holiness. So, um, discipline from God, whether it be afflictions or just good training, helps us share his holiness. Help us have holiness in, in commonality with him. Okay, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by discipline. Trained by pain. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Alright, so that's Hebrews 12. Philippians 4, verse 11. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need. I have learned... In whatever situation, I am to be content. So Paul is saying, that was something I had to learn. To learn to be content in whatever situation. Paul wasn't just instantly, you know, super thankful all the time. Super content all the time. It says, I had to learn how to be content in whatever situation. Well, how did he learn that? By being put in terrible situations. He had to learn to be, he got to learn how to be content in every situation by being put in terrible situations. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So enduring suffering can actually make us more aware of how God is powerfully working within us. Paul says it right there. I'm struggling with all of God's energy that he is powerfully working within me. When we hear this word discipline, we probably associate it with something like Ethan was saying, like a spanking. Uh, That is a form of discipline. That's not the only meaning of this word. So, for example, you could get up early every morning to run. 
that's not a punishment for anything you did wrong. Uh, it's, not, it's not a payback thing. It's a discipline that's good for you and not necessarily because you did something wrong. So when you're going through various trials of different kinds, rather than focus on the question like, is God paying me back for something that I did wrong? Uh, you know, sometimes you do face the consequences for something bad that you did. Okay, so I'm not saying that never happens. Um, but that's not the main question you should be asking. Rather, you should be asking, what is the good godly function of this suffering? What is this for? Because it's not pointless. There are no pointless things. There are so many examples of that in the Bible. You can see it in the story of Joseph, um, which I preached about a year and a half ago. Ben could tell you all about it. <laughs> a month ago, we saw how the people of Israel in the book of Judges were going through terrible stuff. But at the beginning of the book, it says God was teaching the people of Israel war and a difficult life because they were soft. <laughs> they were a generation that didn't deal with that stuff. So God was teaching them. We saw that even in the book of Judges. We just talked we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, think back to when we studied Philippians, which Ben already read ahead in my notes again. So remember what Paul says. Let's use that example from Philippians because it's pretty similar to what, what's going on here in Colossians. So how did Paul's suffering in that instance from Philippians ultimately serve a useful purpose for other Christians? Does anyone remember? When Paul was in prison, how did the Philippian people respond? How did Paul being in prison benefit the Philippians? Um, more pastors were raised up. Some of them were preaching for their own gain. Yeah. Exactly. So, Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Look at that sentence there, verse 14. They have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. My imprisonment made them confident. So there's Paul saying, let me take a step back. In what way is the suffering helping other people? My imprisonment has made those people more confident. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians 1.24, look what Paul says here. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So that's where Paul is kind of saying, man... Maybe I kind of hope they put me out of my misery because this is, I mean, this is not fun. It's not like it's fun to be suffering. I understand it has a good reason, but it's not fun. But he's saying, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain because I'll be with Jesus. But I think maybe if, if I just count it up, it's probably more worth it for me to stay alive for your sake. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all. Look at this. For your progress and joy in the faith. My suffering for your progress and your joy in the faith. Philippians 2.17. This, man, this verse, Philippians 2.17, which Pastor Alex actually preached this uh, last Sunday. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So Paul is saying, even if all my life amounts to is to strengthen your faith, I'm happy that my life was worth it. 
That is, that to live is Christ. That. My life is an offering on your faith. To strengthen your faith. To help you live sacrificially. So, in the specific example of Colossians, notice how Paul associates his sufferings with the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Look at verse 25. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Stewardship from God given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the saints. To them, God God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So right there, Paul is saying, this stewardship from God has been given to me for you, for the gospel to spread all over the world, even to the Gentile, non-Jewish world. The rest of the world is another way of saying that. So not only... Not only does Paul speak about how his suffering marks the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, he also mentions how meaningful his pain is for their maturity and progress in the faith. So he says in verse 2, So that their hearts may be encouraged, that their hearts would be knit together in love, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, to see your good order, to see your firmness, the firmness of your faith in Christ. So let's, let's list all those benefits that Paul is saying, my struggle for you. So look, starting in, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, list all the ways that Paul's struggle benefits those people. Our greatest struggle I have for you for those that allow to see it, and for everyone else who hasn't even seen me face to face. And then the list starts. What are the different benefits of Paul's suffering for those other people? Or, or we could say the purpose of Paul's suffering for those other people. Starting in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. Hearts encouraged. Let's just, let's just do like a rapid fire thing. I mean, it's just, it's just saying it in a list. <laughs> Knit together in love. That's a pretty artistic word. Together in love. Uh, Alright. What else? Full assurance. This one's like, I feel like this is like four benefits. (laughs) Uh, All the riches, full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery. All right. Knowledge of God's mystery. All right. What else? Remember that word, in order to, that reveals purpose. In order that. Okay, that you're. In other words, that you're not gullible. You're not easily swayed, like in Ephesians says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Okay, so we could put not easily deluded. 
not easily diluted. Um, okay, what else? I see two more. Results of people being more mature. No. Well, I'll just say it, whatever. So the, the last two, good order. I'm, of course, using the ESV up here. So sorry if it's kind of, I know Ethan has MKJV. And then firmness of faith. All right, let's look at this gigantic list of benefits that Paul's suffering has for other people. And therefore, your suffering can have for other people. Your suffering can encourage other people. You know, just think about that for a little bit. Your suffering uh, can bring people together. Think about that. Your suffering can give people greater assurance of the, of the faith. Your suffering can bring people to knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. Your suffering can help people understand Jesus more. Interesting. Your suffering can teach other people how to not be easily distracted or deluded. Your suffering can demonstrate a good order of life. Your suffering can demonstrate a firmness of faith to other people. This is not an, there are more benefits. This is not a, a full list of all the benefits. This is a small list <laughs> of the benefits we have. But look at all the possibilities there of your suffering, how it can benefit other people. Alright. So for Paul's suffering, the onlooking Christians receive all these benefits. From now on, do not only consider the lessons you learn in moments of pain. That is a good consideration. I'm not saying I don't consider it. I'm saying don't only consider it. Don't only consider how did this teach me? What did I learn? Also consider how your pain teaches other people. When I was a young boy going to school with all my brothers in our, you know, oversized Ford SUVs, <laughs> uh, I distinctly remember my dad quoting this verse. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He would, that would be like the last thing he said when we would get out of the car. Why do you think my dad would repeat that verse to my siblings as we, as we went off to, to school? Here's why I think that verse is so important for this passage and for us as Christians in, in general. It tells us the kind of maturity we're talking about. When Paul says he's doing all that he does to present everyone mature in Christ, that word mature is a lot more, like I said at the beginning, is a lot more than just do you still laugh at you know, bathroom jokes or not. We're not talking about that maturity. Who cares? That's not the issue here. The maturity, the scope of this word mature in this context has infinite proportions. God did ordain and superintend your life for something glorious. God did not ordain 
you, you know, the tough things in your life just for toughness's sake. Just for the sake of being tough. He didn't, he didn't give you uh, serious things just so you would be a more serious person and that be the end of it. God has ordained and superintended your life all things for glory, for Christ's sake. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. 1 John 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He does appear, we shall be like Him. And we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Jesus endured His suffering because He saw that day in the future. He knew who He really was on the other side of that cross. There would be an end to the suffering. He knew He was the one who was transfigured on the mountain with hair like lightning, skin like burnished bronze, eyes of fire. On the other side of your pain, of your grave, there is glory. Allow me to read from a song, Colony House, Glorious. Moving toward tomorrow, learning to live with sorrow. With my eastern eyes open wide, waiting for a sunrise most of the time, I'm a broken arrow. I'm a fatal error. I've missed my mark. I forgot my lines. I'm waiting for a sunrise. On my own, I am no one. On my own, I follow. Searching every evening's lonely sky. When all I need is a sunrise. I'm so tired of living like I don't have what it takes. Like I don't have what it takes and I'm still waiting for the day. When I'm more than mistakes. More than mistakes. I can feel the sunrise on my skin. I will be glorious. Christ is the assurance of glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then we will also appear with Him in glory.